We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Writer, author, broadcaster and parliamentarian Lord Melvin Bragg joined the BBC as a general trainee in 1961 before his promotion to editor of the first BBC arts programme, New Release, just three years later. From the mid-1970s, he presented BBC Books programme, Read All About It, before a switch to LWT in 1978 for the Cultural Affairs Institution, The South Bank Show which was a staple of the ITV Sunday night schedule for an unprecedented 32 years before a move to Sky Arts in 2010. I caught up with a broadcasting legend to talk TV, the arts, the secret to a great conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Lord Melvin Bragg. Firstly, you have one of the most recognisable voices in British broadcasting, making it easy for you to be identified in almost any context. What are the pressures that this presents and how does it feel being such a significant part of British popular culture? Um, Well, it's very difficult to feel a significant part of British popular culture. It's too big a title. (laughs) You get a few hellos when you walk down the street and um, a number of people listen to the radio and watch the television. But I don't feel that I'm prominent in the way that your question suggests. I think I just get on with these jobs um, and it's funny you should say about my voice because early on, when I when I was in my early twenties, I was told firmly by people who run radio that my voice was hopeless for radio. It was northern, it was adenoidal. Um, I'm, so I should just pack that in and get back to being a producer, which I did for a while, and then gradually came back to to, to speaking. Um, I think that people think that once you're on television or on the radio, then everybody knows you. They don't. I mean, what I do is a, is a fairly minor part of radio and television. If you're, if you're a big star in light entertainment or you're on Strictly Come Dancing or something like that, then lots of people recognise you. But not me. I, I, there's nowhere I avoid because I'm going to be mobbed. I mean, not at all. I go for walks on the heat out here almost every day, and there's hundreds of people there, and I occasionally nod to one or two people, and if they're very kind, occasionally nod back and think, I wonder who that is. I go, oh, I know, it's Michael Palin, and uh, on they go. (laughs) Um, So I guess one of the striking things about your early life was that you attended Wadham College in Oxford. What ways did that ignite your passion for the arts, and how did that differ from the Oxbridge grounding of, say, the Pythons or Cook and Miller? Well, I don't know enough about what they had at university. I know what I had, and I'd already become interested in the arts when I was at school, but I didn't call them the arts. I mean, I was in the school choir uh, singing and uh, and, and in the church choir, much more importantly. It was a very good choir. So I was singing a lot of good uh, stuff, hymns, psalms, anthems, and that, without thinking that this was culture. I just thought it was what you did in choirs. And I read a lot. Um, I read widely. Um, and so I was reading some 
uh, very uh, well-known authors, uh, well-thought-of authors, I mean to say, by the time I was in my late teens, Lawrence and all sorts of people who were often people with a background rather like my own. But not only that, I was reading even more. Uh, I was reading French writers. I, I read and read. I was an only child, and I think that uh, that gave me plenty of time on my own. Uh, and I spent most of it reading. We didn't have a television until much later. And when I was, by that time I'd left home, uh, listened a bit to the radio. So when you weren't outside playing, you were inside reading. Uh, so I read, I read a lot. So by the time I got to Wadham College, Oxford, I had a, a, my own sort of grounding in the arts. So I, I'd, by participating in it, I mean, I'd sung a lot. I'd been in choirs, as I said. I'd read a lot. I'd been in school plays and all that sort of thing. So that, that gave me a foundation. Uh, what Wadham College Oxford gave me was um, a, a, an education that I couldn't have had in the small town of 5,000 people of Wickton, which I was brought up. Um, the tutors were... My teachers at school were very, very good. But when you went to a college, a, a good Oxford college, which that was, it went on to another level, really, uh, first of all, they took it for granted that that the idea of being a, a, a boy in this was gone. You were sort of there equal, man to man about things, which is very uh, flattering and also helped. Uh, and also there were great opportunities. For instance, I'd acted at school, but uh, I acted, when I acted at Oxford, it was with some very, very clever young men and women who were good actors, uh, and we were in plays, and at one stage we went to... Uh, down the Rhine to the university, the German universities along the Rhine, Freiburg down to Heidelberg uh, and so on, and with, with Shakespeare plays. And that was a great experience. And uh, I was in the cinema club and I wrote about films for the local, uh, for, the, for the magazine Chowell, which is the, the magazine of the, uh, of, of the university. So you've got opportunities to do things. And I built up your confidence, I suppose. Hmm. So what was the BBC's attitude towards the Oxbridge elite during that period? Well, the BBC was very keen in the Oxbridge, Oxbridge elite, which is why I was surprised to get in, because I wasn't as part, as part of the Oxbridge elite. Um, grammar school boys weren't part of the Oxford, Oxbridge elite in those days. The Oxbridge elite was almost all, all uh, public school and very the, the uh, higher-ranking public schools, you might say. So I got into the BBC by... Not by a fluke, but um, there were very few people from my background got general traineeships, as they were called. It was sort of scholarships, really, Josh, scholarships. And I got a scholarship to the BBC. I mean, I got a scholarship to Oxford, which got me the money to go through. I got a scholarship into the BBC. And so, um, that, and that was very important for me to go to the BBC because the job I got was extraordinary. I never, I, it never occurred to me. Never, truly, just never occurred to me that you could make a living doing what they asked me to do, making programmes about writers, uh, uh, making programmes about artists. Uh, I didn't know you could do that and be paid for it. That was quite seriously never entered my consciousness. I thought work was, well, I, if I wanted to be anything, it would have been a teacher. Um, but not this business of making programs with artists. That was the big change. And, and also the thrill of what you did 
it went out on the radio. And I'd, I'd listened to radio much more than anything else in my uh, in my childhood. It was it felt very felt very grand, really. So working with working in that way, making television pro- radio programs first, then television programs, and going out on the BBC was terrific. And I and I I never wanted, I haven't really changed it. That's what when I, especially when I moved from radio to television. Uh, BBC television, uh, which because the general traineeship, you went on this circuit. You went, you went on radio, then you went to the World Service, then you went into the what they called the provinces in those days, and then you came back to London. Um, by the time I got there, I thought I'm, I'm going to make sure I don't lose this job because I can't think of a better job. And basically, I never have. I made television programs, and on the uh, and as well as that, I've been writing, but I've never left that job. You know, when you're in a place long enough, they say, would you like to be promoted to this, that and the other? I've never wanted that. I've always thought there were jobs which weren't anything like as much fun as my job. It's like being a footballer wants to keep playing football. And they said, you want to be a manager? He says, no, I want to keep playing football. So I've been playing football for a very long time now. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, sorry, Josh. <laughs> Do you think it helped that that sort of coincided with that boom in popular culture? Yeah, very much so. I think you've you put your finger on it, yes. Not only popular culture, but the idea of working class getting a shout. I think the thing that really brought that in was pop music. I mean, great pop music just swept in at the end of the 50s and 60s. And almost all of the great pop music was from working class people. Uh, and a lot of it from the North. And people were certainly suddenly taking it seriously. I don't mean pompously. They just thought, God, this is really good. And writers uh, were getting their work on television, television drama, working class writers. And they were writing about popular subjects. They were writing about the world that they knew. So you had writers and you had pop singers and you had artists like Hockney and so on. So there was a great movement forward. I mean, um, it's strange how movements in art take place. They just seem to grow. They mushroom. And then one or two people like you two get together and think, oh, well, and somebody else joins you and then other people. And before you know where you are, in a movement. So there was a working class push and also the the situation at the time and the BBC, uh, BBC television uh, was very open to change then. And the writers who were coming in particularly were welcomed by the BBC and, and then look at the great series. I mean, I think Coronation Street for years has been very well written, very well cast and so on. You had that. Uh, easily, far and away, the most successful uh, drama serial on, on television in this country ever. Uh, and Zed Cars, and uh, and then the BBC copied them. So, yes, there was a big move forward and a very strong move forward, and I was part of that, as so many others were, yes. Yeah. In 1961, following joining the corporation a few years previously, as you'd mentioned, you secured the position as editor at the BBC art show New Release. At such an infant era for television, where the corporation was still heavily steered by the government of the day, what was the attitude towards cultural affair programmes among those sort of upper echelons of BBC senior management? 
Well, they encourage them, and I don't think they were dependent on government. I mean, the BBC has always had an arm's length principle from government that government gives the BBC the license fee, and the BBC does what it wants with it. Now, with the, and that, that's, that was the case then, certainly. The people who were running the BBC were quite tough, uh, often men, mostly men. Most of them had been in the army or navy or air force. They'd been in the forces. They were tough people to deal with. And uh, they were establishment, yes, because that was their background. Many of them had been to public school and so on. But they were also independent. So that gave the BBC a strength, I think, and it was taken up in other, in ITV and eventually in Channel 4 and so on and so forth. So it, it wasn't, there wasn't, there was still, a <clears throat> you're right in the sense that the, uh, the prevailing uh, mood up there was that you should conform to keeping society settled and in the same shape it was when you found it, as it were. There was a feeling that not too good to rock the boat. So on the other hand, there was, it has to be said, there was a feeling among people up there that it was great to rock the boat, to shift things, to change things, to move things forward, especially as all this talent was coming up, was coming through, music and writing and drama and, and so on. So it was a very nice balance and uh, refreshing. Yeah, because sort of late night lineup, new release, seen at 6.30, there were some examples of successful cultural affair programmes which introduced the public to a revolution in entertainment journalism. In what ways did, do you think they paved the way for entertainment series such as the South Bank show over a decade later? Oh, I think they did. <clears throat> I think they did. I think they were very, very helpful for that. Um, Monitor, which is what I worked on first of all, uh, edited and uh, introduced by Hugh Walton, was a traditional show, but he was still doing occasionally put, tip, tipping, a, tipping a toe in, uh, in, in, in popular culture. Um, but I think things like late night lineup, uh, where because they were on five or six nights a week, and they they had a massive need for material, they're bringing in all sorts of new people who were new to to being on the BBC to express themselves on the BBC, and because various drama directors were things were introducing things like the Wednesday play, which would Mm-hmm. It was always working class plays and Zedcast, another great series, complete working class series. Things began to change, and um, and that gradually broke through. Uh, so when I started at the South Bank show, I deliberately said I'm going to do popular people like McCartney every bit as seriously as I do the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm going to do mm-hmm. Billy Connolly every bit as seriously. Uh, uh, as I do the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I did. And it didn't go down very well at first, and then people got used to it, and now everybody got used to it. I mean, culture used to be a triangle, a pyramid, really. At the very top was poetry and uh, um, classical music and so on. And the very bottom were uh, working-class singing and songs and that sort of thing. And I don't think it was like that. And I, my own experience wasn't like that. I thought that the thing was that talent came on in every layer. And some of the musicals I saw and some of the songs I heard were far better than what I was seeing and listening to at the Opera House or in concerts. I thought they were, but they weren't represented. So I decided to try to change it from a triangle to a sort of arch. So good stuff was anywhere on that arch. It wasn't just there to there. 
And that was the idea. It didn't go down very well at first, but then it sort of caught on. In 1978, you attempted away from the BBC to front an arts programme for LWT. What were your first impressions of the concept for the South Bank show? Of the uh, South Bank show. Uh, great opportunity. Um, by that time, I'd left the BBC to concentrate on writing and then come back because I, I didn't have enough money to live on. And, um, and I'd been doing book programmes on the BBC, long interviews on BBC Two, basically and a book programme called Read All About It, based on paperbacks. I based it on paperbacks because people could go out and buy the book afterwards. Previously, book programmes had been about newly published hardbacks, which nobody could get hold of. Um, so we'd had that. But what I wanted to do was an all-arts all programme, and that's what ITV offered. Uh, BBC had one called Omnibus, but they had a very good editor. That was that. But that's what ITV offered, and... Um, I bartered with them quite a lot. I wanted the programme to be on at the same time right across the network. I wanted this, I wanted that, I wanted the other. I was in a nice place at the BBC, so um, doing what I liked. So when you're in a nice place, it's, you can afford to barter a bit. And I got there and I made the South Bank show what it was, which was basically an arts programme which included Paul McCartney, every bit as much as Herbert von Kajan, Every bit as much as David Hockney, every bit as much as Harold Pinter, very much as and on and on it went. And eventually it caught on. At the start, it got a raspberry from the critics. They didn't think that pop music was part of culture. Uh, I don't know what they think now. I'd have changed a bit. Sorry, say that again. Do you think you helped with that? Yeah, I think I was part of it. I think the South Bank show was part of it. Yes, I think we were part of it. And because we were on television, and television was even more influential then than it is now, uh, yeah, we were part of it. Yes. Among... All the many iconic interviews from the South Bank show, one perhaps you'll always claim top spot. What were your initial reservations regarding interviewing the dying Dennis Potter? Well, I'd known Dennis for a while, Dennis Potter. He's much the same background as myself. His father was a miner um, and he came to Oxford on scholarships. My father, they came from a similar background. I came to Oxford on scholarships. Um, and we heard he was dying. And uh, I, I said, well, would you like to do a sort of testament? Last will and testament interview. Last will is the wrong word. A testament. And I wrote him and he said, yes, he would. It took quite a bit of organising. Michael Braid was very helpful. He was then running Channel 4. Uh, but De- Dennis was very ill. Um, so uh, and we talked to his doctor and said, how long do you think you can last in the interview? And the doctor said, well, not to die, but just to keep going, as it were. And he said, mm, 60 minutes, top weight. Uh, and he came in an ambulance, which drove into the uh, back of the studio, and he, he brought a little flask of um, um, his medicine. I'm not so sure it wasn't... Uh, uh, no, and he also brought a pack of fags because he smoked all the time. 
Uh, it wasn't cocaine, it was a... I should remember, but I can't. Um, and he had to sip occasionally to keep him going. And, um, and we decided to strip the studio down, not to have extracts, not to waste time on extracts from his work. We assumed people would know something of it. So just one-to-one talk. And it was, it was very moving. Um, and it was difficult in a way because, and this is something I, I'm, I'm, I'd like for you, Josh, to understand. It isn't when you know how long something is going to last, you can shape it. I'm having a seven-minute interview with you. That's one thing. I'm having a 24-minute interview with you. That's a completely different thing. What can I do? What can I... Well, I didn't know how long Dennis was going to last. Um, and um, it didn't seem at one stage like anything like 60 minutes. It ended up at 74 minutes. We had to stop twice and go around the studio and take his uh, medicine and, uh, and so on. Um, so I didn't quite know how to shape it because one of the things about shaping is you've got to know about the ending. The ending shapes the piece. And I didn't know if he just got suddenly tired. I didn't want to leave him like that. Anyway, it was, it was, that, was, that, was, that was what it was, something I had to cope with. And that was that. He was terrific. I mean, he, he, uh, he, talked to, he said he'd called his cancer Rupert after Rupert Murdoch. Um, uh, he talked about looking out of his window and seeing the pear tree in full blossom, and it was the blossomingest blossom he'd ever seen. Um, and he had phrase and phrase like that, which caught on, which caught on with people, obviously with you. And um, and it was it was something that hadn't happened before. Sure, it's happened since. Uh, people talking to those who are towards the end of their life, but hadn't happened before. Certainly not with somebody as uh, eloquent as Dennis Potter. I mean, magnificently eloquent. His mind was in terrific shape. Um, so yes, that uh, <laughs> that was that was quite something. And it had a, had a no, no. It, it was watched by quite a lot of people. It wasn't watched by the people who, in my millions and millions, but it was watched by a few millions, and uh, it, it took people's hearts. Yes, yes, it was a big thing. Taking into account all of your interviews for the South Bank Show, what do you think they teach us about the changing face of entertainment? Well, entertainment's a big word. I mean, it covers it covers everything from drama to. I think it's become a lot more honest. I think a lot of people who previously would have thought they couldn't get there, do that, comes from different sorts of conditions and backgrounds, having their stories told on television. Uh, I think, therefore, in that sense, with the small C, it's much more Catholic. I still think it's a great medium, a great medium for change. It's been drowned out by the number of channels to a certain extent. But still, it's a magnificent medium, uh, reaching millions of people at the same time, watching the same thing, often highly skilled actors, highly skilled screenwriters, highly skilled dancers, singers. I think it's a great medium, and uh, I I think it's had a big effect. Well, Josh's personal favourite episode was when you met Ronnie Corbett. The many differences between him and Barker have been well documented, but as an interviewer, how do someone like his talents as an all-round entertainer help you to get the very essence of him? Well, it's not too difficult with Ronnie Corbett, to tell you the truth. He's so good. He's so clever. 
uh, and he's uh, he's far cleverer than I am, and he he sort of knows what you're going to ask. <laughs> he's already got that. He doesn't click clicked away. And also, he spent his life doing things which entertain people, which directly talk to people, which uh, draw them into his story. We're telling stories really, and drawing them into his stories. So, <clears throat> so it was a gift, really. It was a gift. I mean, um, it wasn't hard. It was hard not to laugh. Um, but it wasn't a difficult interview. With so many people, you have to work hard to to get where you want to get. Not with Ronnie Cole, but he was charming. And he was very sure of what he, what he was doing. He was modest about what he was doing. But he knew that it was good. And, and that the two of them together, obviously, um, were an incredible, incredible pair, incredible actor. They were brilliant. Yeah. So it was a it was a joy, and I'm glad you liked it that much. I did too. A lot of your subjects appeared more than once on the South Bank show, in various different stages of their careers. What do you think was the biggest change that you were able to chart in someone's career? Um, that's a good question. I suppose I'd probably say David Hockney, and David just moved on from. Um, I mean, he had his first exhibition when he was a when he was a, a college, uh, and then he moved into wonderful portraits, and then he stopped um, altogether doing painting and did photo- made collages from photographs, um, and uh, you know, took lots and lots of photographs, stuck them together, and made made a, as it were a painting of those. Then he moved on to <clears throat> work about perspectives. Then he, he just kept moving on. And I suppose the thing about David is that he just he seemed to grow and grow and grow before your eyes. Hmm. Excellent. Um, so beyond TV, you presented the BBC Radio 4 series In Our Time for over 20 years. What's the secret to its longevity? People like it. <laughs> Enough people like it. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a minority programme, but it has a loyal following, and uh, it's on a great channel, Radio 4, uh, which, has a lot, which has quite a lot of these sort of uh, minority programmes. I think it's a curious... I mean, I think it's a sort of curiosity. I came... I don't know how I came to think of it, but because I'd been doing Start the Week, and then... Um, uh, the Labour government wanted, uh, made, uh, suggested I become a lord, go in the lords to help with any legislation about um, arts that were going through, and they intended to put a lot of legislation through, which they did about the arts. David Putnam and myself, one or two others, went in uh, on that basis. Uh, and the bit, uh, But then BBC thought that this meant I was political, so they stopped start the week because they thought that was political. They were mistaken, it wasn't, but I was rather glad they did, especially when somebody suggested, well, why don't you do, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to do a programme with academics only. Nobody was allowed to plug a book. They were about subjects and not about book sales. And we'd cover all the field. We'd do what we wanted to do. We'd cover science and astronomy and Mm. history and religion and, and hop around the place and that's what we've done ever since and it's, it's sort of caught on yes yeah um 2017 now you presided over an array of stars for the bbc special the box that changed the world what did that teach you about the power of television oh that its power is enormous really 
well used and badly used. Look at the power it has in Russia at the moment. Television is convincing nearly 100 million Russians, the opposite of the truth. It's a very, very powerful medium. And television can delight people enormously, like that uh, when we did the uh, stage the Olympics, uh, 27 million British people watched the staging of the Olympics, which was just a sort of vivid pictorial history of what we've done in this country, the Industrial Revolution, the National Health Service, and so on. It can, have a, it can reach out to an awful lot of people, yes. And, and I think often for the better, yes. Hmm. So you've got, you've got a fair bit to pick from. But looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? <laughs> well, <laughs> gosh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a tricky one. <laughs> we haven't got that long, but <laughs> you have to that's rifle a, through that's your... A, that's a worn bowl, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think my proudest achievement is a quieter one, is managing to finish my first novel. Hmm. I, I wanted to write from the age of 18 or 19, and I wrote short stories. I didn't show them to anybody. I didn't know much of it. And then I tried to write novels, and I tried, and I didn't finish this one, and I didn't finish that one. But I kept pegging away, and eventually I finished one, uh, which a publisher took up. And I was, I was very pleased with that, because, because it's something I did entirely on my own. In television, you're helped by people, you know, by producers, by directors, by a very good cameraman, so on. And on radio, still, you have a broadcaster, you know, so on, and the people participate. But in writing a book, you're on your own in a room with a blank page and a pen, and if you're lucky, a cup of coffee, and that's it. And uh, so I was, I was, I think, looking back, yes, I, I didn't think I'd ever, because I read lots of novels. It never occurred to me that I could write one. And after he'd written one, it never occurred to me it would get published. And after it got published, it never occurred to me I'd write a second novel. So, yeah, that, I would think. That's what I'm proudest of. Well, I've done some other things where I'm pleased with, but that's the proudest of, just battling on till I got that first novel written and accepted. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, lastly, what's next for Melvin Bragg? <laughs> well, well, I'm going to ask Josh what's next. What's next? Well, I like doing what I'm doing. I, I'm, I, I, we still do the South Bank show uh, on Sky Arts. I like, I love doing in our time. Uh, I've just finished another book, which is coming out next month, and I'm starting to think about the next book and having no thoughts at all. It's w- worse, Josh, than having no thoughts is having too many thoughts. That's the yeah. real figure. Um, oh, lots of things I want to write about, but that's hopeless, isn't it? I mean, you can't write about lots of things. <laughs> so any suggestions would be gratefully received. Yeah, well, uh, on a postcard. Josh said, if you were the subject of your own South Bank show, what would it look like? (laughs) I think I'd make a mess of it, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd make a mess of it, Josh. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, that's all our questions. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you very much. No, thank you. It's an honour. 
Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.